The following sermon is by Stephen Tillis, pastor of Emanuel Baptist Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. Please visit us at 2100 Noble Road in Raleigh or on the web at ebcraleigh.com. And now, here's Pastor Steve. Brothers and sisters, let's take our Bibles this morning and turn to the book of Acts, chapter number 2. I uh, just want to kind of keep before us uh, periodically through this series. Uh, you know, the book of Acts is a long book and a lot of uh, narratives, a lot of things going on. And so I, I always want to kind of keep before you the main theme of the kingdom of God spreading uh, good news to the ends of the earth, starting in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the other most parts of the earth. And so today we find ourselves in the book of Acts, chapter number 2. And just to bring you up to speed from where we were last week, of course, uh, the Lord Jesus uh, ascends in the uh, latter half of chapter number 1, and then the disciples are in the upper room. And the promise that Jesus made, He said, I want you to go back to Jerusalem, I want you to wait until the Spirit of God, the promise that I have given you of the Spirit of God, that He will come and descend upon you. And in uh, Acts chapter number 2, the first 13 verses, that's uh, just kind of like in the video, that's what happens. The cloven tongues of fire come down, the Spirit of God is with the disciples, and they begin to speak in tongues, okay? And what is happening there is the word glossolalia. It just simply means other languages. And so as they speak in these languages, all of the people from all of these various countries and tribes and nations, they begin to hear the Word of God, not some sort of language that nobody understands, but they begin to hear the Word of God in their own native language. And it is a miracle, so much so that they begin to accuse these apostles and disciples of being drunk. They're saying, hey, listen, you guys are going off at the mouth, and how in the world can all this be happening? And in Acts chapter number 2, now where we are today, you'll find verse 14 uh, down through verse number 38 or 39 is where we'll be today. The uh, Apostle Peter begins to preach a sermon. And so what we want to do today is break the text just simply into three parts. I'm going to give you these three points up front, and then I'll show you how they break down. And so here is, uh, in, in just a nutshell, here is the uh, here's the sermon. The first point is this. God's Spirit changes everything. You might want to write that down. God's Holy Spirit changes everything. Verse 14 to 21. Then uh, verse number 22 down to uh, verse number 37, you'll find that it is God's Son is the center point of all history. God's Son is the center point of all history. Verse number 22 down to verse number 36. And then verse 37 and verse 38, we'll simply make this point today. God's salvation comes with both promises and demands. God's salvation comes with both promises and demands. So let's pick up in verse 14 down through verse number 21. I'll read that little section and then make some pointers about it. But notice here the Apostle Peter, verse number 14. But Peter, taking his stand with the eleven, raised his voice and declared to them, men of Judea and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give heed to my words. For these men are not drunk as you suppose." For it is only the third hour of the day. Basically, it's nine o'clock in the morning, and you'd have to be a stone cold drunk to be drunk at nine o'clock in the morning. Said so that's not rational. 
But this is what was spoken of through the prophet Joel. And then you'll notice in most of your Bibles, this is probably set off in italics, or this is probably in all caps, something to show a distinction here. Now, this is a prophecy in the Old Testament. It'll look a little bit different than the rest of the verses around it. Verse 17 and following, And it shall be in the last days, God says, that I will pour forth of My Spirit on all mankind, And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. And even on my bond slaves, both men and women, I will in those days pour forth my Spirit, and look at it, and they shall prophesy. And I will grant wonders in the skies above, and signs on the earth below, and blood and fire and vapor and smoke. And the sun will be turned into darkness, and the moon into blood before the great and the glorious day of the Lord shall come. And it shall be that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will or shall be saved. Let me just point out a few things to you from those verses. And that is that this has to do, first of all, with the pouring out of the Spirit of God upon His people. Something new has transpired. You see, God has come down into the world to be incarnated into the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And He has died on the cross. He's been resurrected again. He has gone back to heaven and He has sent His Spirit. And when the Spirit of God comes into the world to help the church to fill God's people, something and everything changes. There is a power in these verses. There is something of majesty and glory when you read this. And in fact, I was, uh, this past week I was noticing all of these stupid posts about the world coming to an end next Saturday. Has anybody seen that garbage? Brothers and sisters, next Sunday morning we're going to worship God right here. And so I'd make every effort and plan if I were you to be back here. Now, is the Lord Jesus able to come back whenever He wants? Well, of course He is. But I just want to tell you something. Those people that are saying all of that kind of stuff, they're twisting prophecy. They have no idea what they're talking about. And that kind of garbage has been happening for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. And they're wrong and the Bible's still right. Amen? The Spirit of God has come. You notice what it says here, that all of these things are taking place until Christ comes again. The Spirit of God has been poured out upon this age. And so let me point out a few things. First of all, because this is a sermon, and I'm a preacher, I want to call a little attention to a couple of things. Whether it's me or anybody else in the future, when you listen to preaching, it ought always to have these kind of components. Explanation, illustration, and application. And it ought always to be done in the power of the Holy Spirit, and it ought always to be accompanied with a firm courage and passion and power that God gives. Look back at verse number 14. But Peter, taking his stand, you can trace that all the way through the New Testament, and the stand here is that he is standing upon God's Word, he is standing with the other eleven, and he is about to proclaim the Word of God. And look what he does. He stands up, he raises his voice, and so if you ever leave here and think, man, Brother Steve, he kind of gets, gets a little excited sometimes, I just take after my brother Peter, amen? He raised his voice. You know what the Old Testament says? Lift up your voice like a trumpet and show my people their transgressions. Yes. 
There's all kinds of preaching. Sometimes it's conversational. Sometimes it's uh, uh, declaratorial. Sometimes it comes out uh, in, in just a talk. Sometimes it comes out with a lot of passion. But whatever it is and whoever you are, when you preach the Word of God, it ought to come up from your soul. The prophet Jeremiah said that the Word of God was bound up inside of me and it burned in my bones. And there ought to be something in a preacher that says, this is the Word of God. Listen to it. Amen. He stands up, he lifts up his voice, and then look what he says here. He declared to them. Preaching is always a declaration, not a conversation. Brothers and sisters, God's prophets have always stood over time since Abraham and all the way to today. God's men have always stood under the anointing and the power of the Holy Spirit of God and declared to God's people, thus saith the Lord. This is the truth. It is not up for discussion. When we read the Bible, and I'm to tell it you, tell it tell you the way that it is, and we are all supposed to leave here, me included, under the mighty hand of God and do what God says. Notice there, Peter stands up, raises his voice, and declares to them the message of the Word of God. And then he says, men of Judea, I want you to understand you're wrong. These guys aren't slapped drunk. They're filled with the Holy Spirit. And then he begins to explain to them the Scripture. And that's the, that's the second thing I want you to understand here is that he says here, look at what he says in verse number 15. For these men are not drunk as you suppose, for it is only the third hour of the day. And look at verse 16 now. But this is what was spoken of the prophet through the prophet Joel. And then back up real quick. Look at the end of verse number 14. Let this be known to you and give heed. If you're looking for the next break in the next paragraph, look down at verse number 22. You'll see very similar words. Men of Israel, listen to these words. You see, the responsibility of the preacher in the sermon is always to stand up and lift up the voice and declare the Word of God. And the responsibility of every member of every church around the world of all time is to listen and give heed to what God is saying through the proclamation of the Word of God. And to listen means that we obey what God says to do. These people have been praying. They're now filled with the Holy Spirit. And the Apostle Paul begins to teach them and say, hey, listen, they're not drunk. They're filled with God's Spirit. And verse, uh, verse 17 and 18, you might have noticed the redundancy here, but I'll just point out to you. He says, I'm going to pour forth My Spirit and there'll be prophecy. The Spirit of God and the Word of God and the proclamation of the Word of God go hand in hand throughout the entire Bible. And whenever you see the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, keep your eyes open for you will see the Word of God not far behind. And in fact, sometimes in some denominations and some groups of people, I will listen and I'll hear about, no, we got poured out with the Holy Spirit was poured out on us. We got slain in the Spirit. We, we, were, we were just foaming at the mouth and rolling a mouth. I mean, God's Spirit came down. Well, tell me about the preaching. Tell me about the Word. You see, my friends, if you say that you have had the outpouring of the Holy Spirit and you don't follow that up by saying the Word of God was delivered to us, the inerrant, infallible, inspired Word of the living God, the Spirit of the God of heaven always works hand in hand with His Word and He will never tell you anything contrary to this Word. Amen? I back up and I just say this to you. If you're a part of a Bible study, it's okay to use books. It's okay to use helps. 
make sure that you're in God's Word. If you're reading the Bible, I see, I know many of you have ESV study Bibles out here and New American Standard study Bibles and NIV and application study Bibles. I want you to read those notes. They're helpful. I want you to read commentaries. We have a library here. You can use all that we have, but don't ever forget that the outpouring of the Spirit of God does not come upon notes. It comes upon the Word of God. Make sure that you're reading God's Word. And not only that, but in verse 17, 18, it is the outpouring of the Spirit upon the Word of God. And not just that, the prophesying, the preaching of God's Word. Now certainly, if we were going to develop an ecclesiology or a doctrine of the church and the structure and elders and deacons and who can preach and all of that for the New Testament, we would want to use many, many other passages of Scripture and not just this one. But what we want to understand is that God anoints and blesses the preaching of His Word. And it's difficult for me to say that because I'm the one preaching this morning. But you take Steve Tillis out of this equation. I'm just telling you in general, God's blessing falls upon the preaching and the explanation and the illustration and the application of His Holy Word. He has always done that in the past and He will always do that until His Son comes. And in fact, in John chapter number 1 and verse number 18, the Bible says that Jesus is the express exegete. He is the express preacher of the God of heaven. Jesus is the greatest preacher that has ever lived or ever will live. And when you get to heaven, you may think that you have run out of preaching and Brother Tillis will not be preaching anymore, but I want you to understand that for all eternity, you'll be listening to the preaching of the Son of the living God. Amen? And when that day comes, I'll sit on a pew and I'll rejoice. Maybe we'll all just bow down before Him. And we will listen to Jesus speak the word of truth to us. I want to encourage you Stay faithful to a gospel preaching, Bible preaching church. You may think that you can worship God somewhere alone, and you can. And there are times where we need silence and solitude. But never, ever, ever fool yourself. You will never worship God the way that you're supposed to worship God until you're gathered together with His people, singing praise to Him, giving sacrificially, praying, fellowshipping with one another, and just like we're doing today, sitting together with minds focused, listening to the preaching and the explanation of God's Word. And when we do that, the Spirit of God that was alive in Acts chapter number 2 and brought the earthquake into that place and saw 3,000 and 5,000 people get saved, that same Spirit will work in tandem with God's holy church around God's holy Word to bring sinners to repentance and His people to revival that we might be heaven on earth today. Amen. Verse number 20 and 21. Let me just say a couple of words here. God's Spirit changes everything in our lives. Look at what it says in verse number 20. The sun will be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and glorious day of the Lord shall come. I just want to pause for a moment. And I want you to understand if you, you know, many of us here together as believers, have you ever had this thought? And y'all don't leave me hanging out here on an island. Have you ever thought, man, I've been in church all my life. I've been listening to preaching all my life. 
And, and I've been hearing about these things. Or, uh, September 23rd, the world's going to end. And, and, you know, sure as the world, it doesn't. Didn't they tell us last year, like September 21st, the world was going to end? And that goober out there in Texas wrote a book and extorted money from all those people. Listen, don't you ever one time by yourself think, is he really coming back? Is, I mean, like, are we just following some sort of weird thing? Is this really going to happen? Well, if you haven't, you will one time, okay? I just want to give you confidence in your soul that the return of Christ will come not on our timetable, not when we want, not when Mars and Pluto are aligned, but when the God of heaven wants to come. And the assurance that I have is not something that I'm grasping at. It's the assurance of God's holy Word that says it will come. And do you know, throughout all of the Old Testament, for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and probably at least five millennia, there were people looking for the coming of the Messiah. And don't you know that some of those brothers and sisters were close to giving up hope? And one day in history, born into a virgin in the city of Bethlehem, came the Son of the living God, Jesus Christ. And He did live a real life. And He took into His life all of our sins. He died on a real cross. He was raised bodily on the third day. And He saves all who believe. The same Jesus who came the first time is the same Jesus who will come the second time. Amen? And then I want you to see, look there at verse number 21. As the Spirit of God changes everything in our lives, look at what it says. And it shall be that everyone who calls... Let me read that again. And it shall be that some people who call on the name of the Lord... No. And it shall be that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. I just want to stop and tell you this morning that if your heart is open to the Gospel of Jesus this morning. And you listen to the truth that Jesus loved you and died for you and rose again and wants to give you eternal life. If you will turn from your sin and put your confidence in Christ Jesus, He will save you by His mighty power and by His Spirit today. Jesus is still in the saving business. Amen? I talk with some pastor friends of mine, and there's times where I read the book of Acts and I think, man, I wish, I wish 3,000 to get saved today. I wish this would be the day 5,000 to get saved. But you know, sometimes it's not like that. And sometimes in this Western society, it's preaching and working and going and discipling, and it's few and far between. Every once in a while, God will break in upon a sinner's heart and they'll get saved. And I get kind of, I get a little, uh, I get a little nervous sometimes when I hear about churches that have these mass baptisms of four or five thousand people at one time just doesn't seem to be happening that way anymore here in our country but around the world I see where God's spirit is moving in miraculous and wonderful ways and so whether it's one at a time or a thousand at a time I want you to know today that Jesus is still at work and his spirit is still saving people you walk out of here and you share the gospel with your neighbor and with your coworker, with your family member, and they may seem hard and cold and indifferent to the gospel, but keep telling them the truth. Keep telling them about Jesus. Keep on being faithful. And one day, God will save those people.
all who call on him, he'll be faithful to save. Christ is the center point of history. Follow closely with me now in your Bible. I need to show you several things in verse number 22 and following. Look at how the Apostle Peter, and for those of you that do preach or teach, I want you to understand, don't ever, ever, ever develop a lesson or a sermon that is not have thought and, and, and grace and thinking and logic in it because you're not following the sermons of the Bible if you don't do that. Somebody gets up and says, well, I'm just going to get up and say whatever the Holy Ghost lays on my heart. You're a fool. You better think carefully. You better open up God's Word and rightly divide it. Look at how the Apostle Peter accurately and carefully and logically lays out for you the Christ who is the center point of history. He lays forth for you in verse number, um, verse number, uh, let's see there, 22. He lays forth his life. Verse 23, his death. Verse 24, his resurrection. Verse 33, his exaltation. And verse number 33 is the capstone of the sermon that he has made both Lord and Christ. Now let me go back and show you that. Look at verse number 22. You'll notice how we start this second section the same way we did in verse 14. Men of Israel, listen, give heed. I want you to think about this. And it's not just men, but it's men and women and boys and girls. Listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene. You see, there is His life. There is His incarnation. We're not talking about a mirage nor a spirit. We are talking about the real, living, human Jesus Christ who is both divine and human. Jesus, the Nazarene, and then what's it say in your Bible? A man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through Him in your midst just as yourselves know. Isn't it interesting? That three-part repetition that by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God had performed. And if you were to go back up to verse number 19 in the middle of the prophecy of Joel, he says, and I will grant wonders in the skies above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. I want you to understand, verse number 22, that we are saved not merely by the death and the resurrection of Christ. We are saved by His life as well. Don't ever forget, you're not trusting in the cross, you're trusting in Christ. You're not trusting in a resurrection, you're trusting in Christ. You're not trusting merely in what He did, you're trusting in who He is as the Son of the living God. And brothers and sisters, we write songs all the time about the cross and the resurrection, and surely they are the focal point of of the gospel, but don't ever forget that Jesus lived a life as well, and it was holy, and it was right, and it was good, and it was the kind of life that helps us to draw from and to live our own life. Let me make one small application that you might not have thought about. God is involved in the ordinary lives of His people. So when you wake up tomorrow morning and you do some gardening or mow your lawn, or when you wake up and you go to that job that you don't really care that much about, but you go because you need a paycheck, and when you wake up tomorrow and you're taking care of babies and children at home and trying to work with them and encourage them and lead them along, when you wake up tomorrow and you do whatever it is that you do and you say, I'm not a superstar, I'm not a movie star, I'm not a rock star, I'm not even a Christian star, I'm just me. 
I want you to understand that God is at work in the ordinary business of your life. You say, Steve, how do you know that? What indirectly points us to that? Did you know that Jesus was 30 years old before you really have any kind of ministry in His life that you know about? When he's 12, he goes into the temple and you know that he's a smart dude because he's schooling the smart guys in the temple already, right? So you know he's got a brain on his shoulders, but you don't hear nothing from him again until he's 30. Now I can't tell you how many people I meet that are in their 20s and they're groaning and stressing and they've got quarter life crisis because they haven't figured out their life's identity yet or where they're going and what they're going to do. Well, I want you to understand something. Jesus was 30 years old before His ministry ever started. So just hold on, sister. God's at work in your life. Now you don't know where I am and the problems I've had and the mistakes I've made and the things I've done. I want you to understand no matter where you are and who you are or how ordinary your life may seem, God is at work in you in the same way that He was in His living Son, Jesus Christ. Not only His life, but His death. Look at verse number 23. This man delivered over... Oh boy. All of my Calvinists and Arminians here today, you all are going to just have a feast on this. You're going to get mad at me and hate each other. So here we go. This man delivered over, oh my goodness, check it out, by the Calvinistic predetermined plan. It's not in that, don't worry about it. <laughs> Change that word. Delivered over by the predetermined plan and the foreknowledge of God. You nailed to the cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. Well, now what happened? Did God deliver them over or did the godless men deliver him over? Was he put together by God's foreknowledge and, and sovereign uh, understanding of everything in history? Did God ordain and make that come to, bow, to pass? Or was it the hands of godless men who had nothing to do with God's predeterminate plan and simply just went and got him and killed him? Y'all figure that out at another time. But... <laughs> All I would simply say to you is this is a great verse of Scripture to understand that both of those arguments are true. We have to think carefully about this. That God is sovereignly in control of all things and He knows all things. But that doesn't necessarily mean that God is the efficient or the efficient cause of all things. So if you're building a house, the efficient cause of building a house are your carpenters who put the nails in the wood and pour the concrete. But the guy who has the blueprints ultimately is a total cause of what is going on. Ultimately, the one who buys the home is the one who has total control over all things. For it is not just going to be a house, but it is going to be a home where people live. And within that great overarching sovereignty and power and control of God, He makes a world in which human beings really do right and wrong things and they're responsible for what they do. And godless men did put Him to death. And I want you to understand that Jesus' life and His death are for us and His resurrection. Look at verse number 24. But God raised Him up again, putting an end to the agony of death, since it was impossible for Him to be held in its power. Oh, why do you think it was impossible for Jesus to be held by the power of death? Hey, talk to me for a minute. Let's, let's fellowship. I, 
Y'all give me a few extra minutes, right? Give me, give me just a couple extra minutes. Talk to me. Why do you think that it was impossible for Jesus to be in held in the grave? Somebody say it. You're not allowed to talk. <laughs> he, already, he knows all this stuff already. All right, so why is it impossible for Jesus when He died on the cross? Look, He didn't swoon. He didn't pass out. He really died. So why was it impossible when they put Him in the tomb? Why was it impossible for Jesus to stay in the tomb? Oh man, y'all are smart. That's right. I thought you were going to say because He was God. No. It's because He was without sin. Now, of course, only God can be without sin. You see, the reason why when we put brothers and sisters into the ground, the reason why when we put people into death that they stay dead is because sin is still in the world and sin is still in them. But when Jesus Christ died on the cross, you see, the only reason why death is in the world at all is because sin is in the world. Isn't that what the Bible says? For by one man sin entered into the world, and therefore death passed upon all humankind. And the reason why we cry, and the reason why we put people into the ground, and the reason why people stay dead is because of sin. But Jesus didn't have any sin in Him, and therefore it was impossible for Him to be held by the grave. Now listen to me carefully. I want to give you really good news today. Good news from a far country. I mean, the kind of good news that if you leave here today, it ought to make your soul just bubble up. The same kind of good news that Jesus gave to the lady in John chapter number 4. And He said, I'll give you rivers of living water pouring up from your soul. Let me give you good news. Some of you have had loved ones who have passed on. You have had a brother or a sister or a mom or a dad or a spouse and you've put them into the grave and you've shed tears and you sang songs and sometimes you even go back and you think about them or you visit them. And I want you to understand. I want, to, I want you to know this. If they've believed on Jesus, the righteousness of Jesus that kept Him from being held in the grave lives in the life and in the soul of every human being that puts their faith and confidence in Christ. And though they are dead now, there will come a day when they will rise up from the ground not because of their own goodness, not because of what they can do, but because they have implanted and in and fused into their life the righteousness of Jesus and it is Jesus that causes the resurrection both of Himself and of all those who believe. Amen? I'm telling you, friends, you might even have a terminal disease here today. You might be heartbroken. You might have friends who have died. But if you have Christ, you have righteousness and you have eternal life that can never be taken away from you. That's why when D.L. Moody died, he said, you tell them on the day that I die that I am more alive then than I have ever been in all of my life. We are alive. Oh boy, give me a minute. Look here, I just have to teach this. I'm not going to get to the end of the sermon, but I need to teach you this. Look down there at verse number 25. Here's another uh, for those of you that teach or preach. Make sure and use the Old Testament. You do realize that Peter did not have a New Testament in his hand and he is preaching the entire gospel of Jesus Christ, right? You do realize that? I want you to follow me. Watch here. This will transform the way that you read the Old Testament. If you ever read the Old Testament and think that it's the history of Israel, you don't know what you're talking about. It's the prophecy of the coming Messiah. All of it is about Jesus. Watch what he says. This is how Peter understands the Old Testament. Verse number 25. For David says of him, of Jesus, I saw the Lord always in my presence, 
for He is at my right hand and so that I will not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue tongue exalted. Moreover, my flesh was also uh, alive in hope because you will not abandon my soul to Hades nor allow your Holy One, that's Jesus, to undergo decay. You have made known to me the ways of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. What it's saying is that when Jesus died in His death, the Father was with Him. And in your death, the Father will be with you too. Look at verse 29. Brethren, I may confidently say to you regarding the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is here to today. So watch. And so because he was a prophet and knew that God had sworn to him with an oath to seat one of his descendants on the throne. He looked ahead in time and spoke of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, that he was neither abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh flesh suffer decay. This Jesus God raised up again, to which we are the witnesses. Therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he is poured forth this which you both see and hear. Hey, sometimes we have chronological snobbery and you think that when the people wrote the Old Testament they didn't know who Jesus was. They dead sure did. Jesus said, Abraham rejoiced to see my day and he did. When David was writing, he was a prophet. And he knew that his body was going to decay in the ground. And so when he wrote those words in the psalm, he said, I'm writing about Jesus. That one day, one of my seed will sit on the throne. He will go through the suffering and the death and the resurrection, and he'll be exalted on high. So when you read your Old Testament, you understand they are writing to you about none other than Jesus Christ. It is not some you know 7th century history about something that doesn't matter. It is the prophecy about the coming of the Son of the living God. Verse number 33 deals with His exaltation. Let me just move to close here. Verse uh, verse 30, uh, let me do verse 38 and 39 just for a moment. God's Spirit changes everything. God's Son is the center point of history. God's salvation comes with both promise and demand. Look at uh, 38. Let me give you the promises first. Peter said to them, right? Well, in verse number 37, Now when they heard this, they were pierced in their heart. And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? Verse 38, Peter says to them, Repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you'll receive the Holy Spirit. Hey, there's two promises that come with God's salvation. Forgiveness of sins and the fullness of the Holy Spirit. And if you're in this room today and you do not know Jesus Christ as your Savior, I want to tell you that whatever dark secrets you have in your past, whatever you've done, you can come to Jesus today, believe on Him, trust Him, and He'll forgive you of all your sins, everything that you've ever done that was wrong. Hey, and get this, believers, everything that you'll ever do that is wrong is forgiven in Christ at the cross. I knew a lady one time said, she said, the greatest miracle for me is not that Christ uh, forgave me uh, before my salvation, but that He forgave me knowing what I would be like after my salvation. 
Forgiveness is in the cross of Jesus Christ. He died for you right here today. If you're in this room, I don't care if you've been a part of this church for 50 years or this is your first time. If you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior, the promise that God gives you is that right now, if you'll turn from yourself, turn to Jesus, He'll forgive you of everything that you've ever done. And He'll fill you with the Spirit of God. He will give you His Spirit. Hey, did you hear what I said? God will take up residence in you. Now, if you're having a bad day, that might encourage you. Here's the demands. Look what it says in verse 38. Repent, and each of you be baptized. Let me deal quickly with that. Repentance means a change of mind that results in a change of behavior. And if you ever hear anybody that says uh, repentance isn't a part of the Christian message, they don't know what they're talking about because the Christian message is about Jesus. And the one message that Jesus preached over and over and over again is repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. Repentance simply means, you know what? I hear this truth about Jesus dying for me. I'm going to turn from myself and turn to Him. Oh my goodness, repent and be baptized. And pastor, I thought you said that baptism is not a power to salvation. Well, yes, that's exactly right. Uh, baptism itself, the act of baptism doesn't save anybody. In the early church, as well as it should be today, that baptism was so much an illustration of what you were believing in your heart that early church believers would have never thought that you could trust Christ and not follow Him in believer's baptism to show the world as a testimony what you had believed in your heart, that you are moving from one people group to another people group, that you are moving from one community to another community. When you were baptized, you were saying, I now identify with God's people who are saved by God's grace and whatever persecution, whatever comes our way, I have cast my life I have crossed the line. I am with Jesus to the very end. Is that you? That's the demands of the Gospel. Turn from yourself and believe on Christ and step into the new community of God's chosen people. Now, if you walk out of here today and you say, I'm a believer, but I just kind of live life like I want to, you're lost. You're not in the community. I don't care how many times you've been under somebody's water, you have not been baptized into Christ Jesus. You think about your life this last week. If you lived this last week, by and large, with just being the governing agent of your life, without consulting Jesus, without submitting to Him, I'd be very, very careful about asking yourself, Am I truly in the new community of the Gospel where I've bowed down and He has become both Lord and Christ to me? To be in the new community means that we tell other people what has happened to us. And that's what happens in the rest of the book of Acts. Peter preaches the sermon and he says to those folks, they're not drunk. 
They're filled with the Spirit of God. And that's why all these changes are happening. And when our church is revived by the power of the living God and the Spirit of God comes to rest in us and He's kicking out sin and bringing in holiness and we're depending on Him, you will find that amazing and powerful changes will take place in this community and in our community around us. Christ is the center point of all human history. His life, His death, His resurrection, His ascension, His exaltation, and His coming. Jesus is the message to the world. And the promises of salvation are rich. That you're forgiven. That you've been given God in the person of the Spirit. And the demands of that salvation. Turn from yourself. Believe in Christ. Step into the community of God's people. And follow Him. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes with me? In just a moment we'll stand and sing a little bit. But maybe right where you are, as I say every week, maybe right now, this might be the quietest time you've had all week. For some of you, this really might just be the first time you've prayed all week. It's okay. There's no judgment here. I'm not coming at you. Would you just quietly pray? If you're in this room and you say, I, I, don't, I really don't know Jesus like that. I, you know, I've been a part of a church. I've done a few religious things. But He really doesn't dominate my life every day. It's not like I've been baptized into some new community where He's Lord and Christ. But you want that? Right where you are. Talk to Him. Turn from trusting in yourself. And believe on Jesus. And no matter what anybody says in the world, He'll forgive you of everything you've ever done. And God will come to live in you and you'll never be alone again. If you're a believer in this room, we've stepped into a journey of the early church. And I can't help but crying and thinking in my mind all week, is our church an early church? Are we focused on going out of here with a burning heart? Oh, pastor, just let me out of the doors. I'll tell somebody about Jesus. Are you crying and praying that the Spirit of God would descend on your life and kick out sin and bring righteousness? Have you decided, I have stepped into a new community and I'm going to start living like that at work and family and friends? Why don't you make those decisions today? You've been listening to Stephen Tillis, pastor of Emmanuel Baptist Church in Raleigh. For more information and free access to other messages, please visit us at ebcraleigh.com.